Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo. I'm in Score Studios with fellow co-host Joe Wolfon. What up, Cash? I'll be honest, not a whole hell of a lot is actually up right now. It's the first time in a long while I've been able to say that because there hasn't been a blockbuster of a trade. Feels pretty good. Yeah, or a blockbuster of a free agent acquisition since the last time we did this, which was a week ago when the Chris Paul, Russell Westbrook blockbuster went down. So we're going to try to kind of catch our breath on today's podcast and kind of bounce around the league and take a look at what the big picture is in the NBA after all the dust has settled on free agency, maybe some trends that have emerged, some things we should be keeping an eye on as the busy part of the offseason winds down. So, so let's just start. You know, I actually mentioned that we haven't been in here since the Chris Paul, Russell Westbrook blockbuster. Maybe before we get to some of that big picture stuff, if we can just touch on the fact that the Thunder now seem open to the idea of at least beginning the season with Chris Paul. Yeah, I mean, I don't think they really have a choice, do they? (laughs) Yeah, probably not, unless they want to attach one of those picks. Which they shouldn't do. There's just no point in doing that. And I think, you know, as long as Chris Paul doesn't get injured or really get off to a miserable start, which I don't expect to happen, there is going to be a market for him once December 15th rolls around and a bunch of these guys who have signed this offseason are going to be eligible to be traded. And I think that's really just probably the biggest roadblock right now to a trade getting done is that Chris Paul has this huge cap figure that is going to be really difficult for a lot of these teams to match. And that's especially true when so many of the teams around the league have guys who have recently signed and just aren't eligible to be traded right now. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And this goes back actually to what we both were kind of thinking when this trade went down, which was that even though we understand the Thunder are clearly in rebuild mode and they have all these picks and they're kind of in a race to the bottom and they've pivoted, there is an opening there. And I'm not saying it's extremely likely, but there's an opening there that with Chris Paul, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, Danilo Gallinari, Steven Adams, Andre Roberson. How much can we expect? I mean, like, I would, love, I would love to see Roberson back and, and playing at the level that he was at when he got hurt because he was having a defensive player of the year caliber yeah. season. Like, he really was maybe the best perimeter defender in the yep. league at the time that he got hurt. And it would be exciting to see if he can make it back and be a positive contributor. I mean, this is something that I mentioned on our last pod. I wonder if they're regretting trading Jeremy Grant just because, I mean, they get the first rounder from Denver, but that pick is going to fall in like the late 20s, right? Like Denver, we expect to be probably one of the top five teams in terms of regular season record this year. Him with this Thunder team, you know, with Chris Paul, a point guard with Gallinari on the wing as, you know, sort of multi-positional defender and a guy who can even slide up and play some five, who has, you know, proven that he can shoot the three at a high level, at least as a stationary spot-up shooter. Like, they, they could have really used him. And if if they decide, you know, that they're basically going to go for it because they don't have a choice here, I mean, I wonder if they don't wish that they could have him back. I did a piece last week about 10 under-the-radar moves of the offseason. I had the Nuggets picking up Jeremy Grant as one of the top ones. I mean, I don't know if people realize how valuable Jeremy Grant was last year. This is a guy that can essentially defend all five positions, has turned himself into a stretch big, is versatile on both ends of the court. I think he averaged like 13 or 14 points per game last year, and he's still pretty young. That's a really good player. Yeah. And He's I, like, what, 25, 26? 20, yeah, in, in mid-20s. Shockingly young. Right. So the Thunder might be regretting that. And again, like whatever you get out of Robertson is what you get. But like I mentioned, they're starting five, which is pretty solid. Um, Schroeder, I'm not look, I'm not the biggest Schroeder fan, but I think look as a sixth man, I actually thought he had a salt like a quietly solid season last year. He's eh. there are some empty calories there, but I yeah. think if you know if he's your sixth or seventh man, it's not the worst position to be in. The point I'm trying to make is that I think OKC has a pretty solid team in place as presently constructed. And all of a sudden, if they are in a position where they're not just dumping Chris Paul immediately, say you start the season, I don't know. 22 and 15 and you're like tied for fifth in the west and there's a trade out there that you're in position to make because you've got 88 draft picks the next 12 years right and you can add another star now all of a sudden guess what in this wide open title chase you probably just became a contender so i understand their their pivot to a rebuild and i think they did it you know very prudently but at the same time i think and i think they will be because sam presti is this guy i think they should be open to anything here Yeah, they have a chance to do something. For sure. And I think the frustrating thing about that Grant trade is that it seemed more geared toward getting out of the luxury tax than it did toward 
just pivoting toward a full-scale rebuild, which, whatever, that's that's a fine ambition as well. You know, as far as team building goes, that's a, a decent way to do it. But Especially if you don't anticipate competing for anything. No, year. yeah, and I, I'm sure, you know, they expected, I don't know if they expected to be able to flip Chris Paul right away, but, uh, you know, they clearly anticipated when they made that Jeremy Grant trade that Russell Westbrook wasn't going to be on the team at the start of the season. I don't know if the, they saw the Chris Paul trade happening and, and that being the way that that situation went. But, um, I mean, I agree with you. I think they have stockpiled so many draft assets at this point. They could trade a bunch of those draft assets and still have a ton left over. And, I, you know, I've said this before, but they're, they're not going to be able to make all of those draft picks. They have something like 15 draft picks in the next six or seven drafts. They, there just isn't going to be room for all of that talent. Like, they're going to have to move some of it. And this season could have been a prime opportunity to do so. Because, uh, I look, I don't want to get into a whole, like, Russell Westbrook versus Chris Paul type of thing. Um, you know, or who's better, who works better, and, or, like, contributes more to winning in the modern NBA. But, like, I just think I've heard a lot of commentary disparaging Chris Paul and I think that he still has a ton of great basketball left to give and I might prove to be wrong I mean he's got a ton of miles on his body he is an undersized point guard who is in his mid-30s can't stay healthy so maybe maybe I'm just wrong about that but I I tend to think that he has you know another two years of solidly above average to potentially even elite point guard play left and that I don't think the swapping out Westbrook for Paul is necessarily going to make the Thunder worse. So that's where I stand on that. But, you know, for now, I think their their goal should just be to keep him healthy, to have him playing at as high a level as possible, and to set themselves up to potentially flip him for a nice return, you know, come December 15th or later. Yeah, and I think a lot of teams are kind of in the same boat, where they almost have no choice but to go into the season and see what they've got, because... It is. I know we we talked about it ad nauseum, but it really is just as unpredictable as a season, you know, as we can remember, at least going into it in terms of trying to prognosticate where every team falls. And I guess that can kind of just get us into the rest of our show here, bouncing around the league and looking at trends. And, and, you know, the first thing you mentioned in our show notes is player movement, right? And that's the reason we're in this position now where there is no super team, you know, obviously mostly because of Kawhi's decision, but there's no super team. There's no clear-cut championship favorite. In the West, there's probably only two or three teams that absolutely can't make the playoffs. The East is obviously a lot weaker, but same thing. There's a lot of bad teams that are at least playing for two home playoff games. Like, there's there's not a lot of tanking to start the year. What's your big takeaway from it? I just, I don't even know if I have a big takeaway. Obviously, this is the era that we currently reside in, and I guess I have more questions than answers. You know, whether this is the new normal, and, you know, if... The, I, the league seems to want to curtail it to a certain extent, right? Like, the, the measures that they put in place, like the Supermax contract, incentives, you know, that allow incumbent teams to keep their homegrown stars haven't really worked. Um, and, and in certain ways, they've kind of backfired where teams become hesitant about signing those Supermax deals. And ultimately, I, I don't know that there's a whole lot that they can do about this when, you know, the players are the product and they have figured out how to leverage their power and work themselves, you know, to the destinations that they want to go to, you know, to what extent can the league actually put sort of bulwarks in place to prevent that from happening? I, I don't know. I don't really see it. Uh, and, you know, maybe we'll be talking about this when the next round of CBA negotiations starts probably in a couple of years. Uh, I, I don't know really what can be done, but I, I, is there going to be a sea change at some point? Is it going to reach a breaking point? Um, because, I mean, the interesting thing is, like, when we talk about player empowerment, I'm not the first person to point this out, but really it is just superstar empowerment, right? And one thing we probably don't reckon with enough is all the people that are affected by that that are not superstar players, whether it is, you know, mid-level players, guys on coaching staffs, everybody whose lives get rearranged, you know, because of the whims of... The, the privileged few that's what makes it difficult for me and I like I always come back Damian Lillard was asked about this during this season about whether he would ever consider asking for a trade from Portland and 
he said something that I found really illuminating, which was, you know, he doesn't want to mess up a bunch of other people's lives. Like, he demands a trade, and suddenly it's like five or six other players get moved. And he didn't want to be the guy who was responsible for everyone's lives getting uprooted. And, I mean, good on him for thinking that. And I'm not necessarily saying that, like, every superstar in the league should abide by that, but I think, I think that was telling. Well, ask DeMar DeRozan how it feels when you become the pawn in a bigger superstar's trade demand. For real, like, yeah. DeRozan said something to that effect last year when he was talking about the shock of the trade, and he was saying the way he reacted to it was kind of like, like, all I know is, like, this one guy wants out of his team, and all of a sudden, I'm gone from my team where I don't want to leave, right? So, yeah, to your point, it there are a lot of effects that come not just with the free agency movement, but also with trade demands and things like that. Now, a question to ask is, and I believe I know the answer, but does the league need to do anything about it? And I think the answer is no. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know, maybe five years from now, if this continues and no star stays on a team longer than two to three years. I, I don't know, maybe the league will feel they have to do something. But right now, I don't think they do. I think free agency and the the on and off court power of superstars is part of what makes the NBA product what it is right now. And it's as powerful as ever. It's, you know, talk to a lot of people that think the NBA is truly the sport that is going to catch the NFL and in the US. And that's, that's the kind of thing like was unfathomable even 10 years ago. In spite of the fact that, that the ratings are down. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but the television contract is there, right? Um, the social media interest is there. I just, I don't see anything happening right now within the league that would make them think, oh, we better do something about this, right? Like, okay, sure, the, you know, what goes on at 6 p.m. when the moratorium, I know this is something we'll probably talk about later too, but the moratorium is something they probably want to look at because there was obvious tampering. But in terms of the player movement itself and the superstar empowerment, I, you know, like what can they really do? They used to have longer contracts, you know, could they bring back six, seven, eight year deals? Well, then you're looking at a situation where if anyone pays attention to the NHL, free agency kind of sucks because the best players are signing like eight, nine, 10 year deals. Like, wow, that guy's never seen free agency again. And yeah, it's, it's comforting for the hometown fans, but on a league wide level, they want to generate as much interest as they can. And that doesn't help that, right? That negatively impacts that. The thing I've always subscribed to, and I think, you know, it's been talked about in other places. I'm sure you've heard it too. To me, one of the fixes could be keep the salary cap, but eliminate the individual max. And this could change a lot because Kawhi Leonard's a free agent and one of the LA teams wants him that desperately. Well, you've got, say at the time, the cap's $120 million sometime in the future. Listen, man, there's nothing stopping the one of the LA teams or someone else from offering Kawhi Leonard whatever the hell you want, $80 million a year. Now, that would severely impact your ability to put a team around him and... You know, maybe that would actually curtail a guy like Kawhi from signing with your team. But I don't know, man. That's a lot of money. Yeah. Like, if if you got to a point like that, I think you would see superstars signing or long-term deals, maybe sticking with it and being okay with not being on a super team because they are being paid like the superstars they are, which in a individual max system... They're not. Everyone knows LeBron's been underpaid for how long because... His whole career. Exactly. Because of the individual max. Yeah. So I've long held that that would be... If the league was truly interested in creating total parity, that would be the best way to do it. My issue with that is, in that situation, the middle class suffers even more. Because, you know, you look at... If if a team has a salary cap and they are willing to give a player like LeBron James or Kawhi Leonard 50 or $60 million a year... It's the lower-run guys who are going to get squeezed out. Their their salaries are going to shrink as a result of that. And that's a difficult thing with the union, right? Because, you know, the union reps, the player reps, are... It's like LeBron and it's Chris Paul. Like, the, it's elite players. And they... is It's sort of a tricky balance because they want to look out for their own interests. But I think... Also, you know, a lot of people are watching and, and making sure that they're looking out for everybody else as well. And... You know, I think you eliminate max contracts, and I just, on balance, I don't think that makes the league's player pool particularly happy. And I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing either, but, um, you know, if you wanted to achieve more parity, if you wanted the stars to spread out rather than clustering together, that would be, I think, the easiest way to do it, the quickest fix. But, I mean, is the issue, like, the short-term contracts is definitely a thing with, 
you know, superstar players in their primes who believe that they are going to be able to, you know, put forth two years of elite production and then sign another mega deal. And with Kawhi, it's like he signed the two plus one with the Clippers. And I think the expectation is, you know, he wants to get back into free agency when he's eligible for that 10-year max, 35% of the cap. And 8% raises, I believe, over yeah. 5%. Instead of, yeah. So... I, I, yeah, I mean, there, there's that element of it, but there's also just players wanting to maintain maximum flexibility. And it changes from play. Like, you look at Tobias Harris, right? Like, how eager was he to sign a five-year, $180 million deal? Like, I don't think Tobias Harris is saying... I understand, like, he rejected a four-year, $80 million extension from the Clippers last summer, which proved and, to be a and fantastic... And people were ripping him for that. People were like, wait, Tobias Harris just turned down $80 million? What's going on? Yeah, good yeah. on him. I mean, he made he, an extra hundred mil this summer. Right. So, I mean, I guess it just changes from situation to situation, but um, it's clear that the, the cream of the crop right now are valuing flexibility and mobility more than anything, and just... Knowing that situations can change extremely quickly, like wanting to be in position to to make whatever move they see fit um, and not. But I mean, it almost just seems like it doesn't matter anymore because players are asking for trades with two years left on their deals. And teams to this point have been basically willing to oblige them. I mean, the, the Pelicans didn't with Anthony Davis and he lost a half season as a result. But, you know, now that he's on the Lakers where he wanted to go playing with LeBron James and, and looking ahead to a season where he's going to have, a, I think, a decent chance to compete for a championship. Is he really regretting the way that situation played out? No, probably not. But on that note, I will also say, and maybe this is, it's kind of like a subheader of the player movement, player empowerment thing we're talking about, but like for none of these, like Anthony Davis in one year will be a free agent. Kawhi Leonard and Paul George in two years will be free agents. And, I know the expectation is, well, now they're where they want to be and they'll just re-sign and it's just, you know, in Kawhi's case, for example, he just wants to take advantage of the 10-year max. And I largely agree with that. But if there's another takeaway that that we can take here as the dust settles on the offseason, it's that no one should assume anything and nothing should be taken for granted. And if people are still assuming things on how free agency will turn out two years from now, then they clearly haven't learned anything from the last couple of years in the NBA. Do I think Kawhi Leonard will probably be happy in LA and, and stay there? Yeah, probably. But if you think that's a foregone conclusion when that's two years down the road, if you think there's not at least a greater than 0% chance that another team might enter into the Anthony Davis sweepstakes over the next 11 months, again, you're just sleeping on the way this league operates. So that to me is another big picture takeaway. Assume nothing, take nothing for granted, no matter which player is in which market and how long remains on their deal. The other thing that I've kind of taken away from this is it just seems like homegrown championship cores might be becoming a thing of the past. And I know, you know, the Warriors basically did it not that long ago. But apart from that, I mean, I'm just thinking about how excited we get about young cores and we try and project them forward and we're like, you know, which team is going to be the best in five years? Now we're looking at like Memphis and New Orleans and Atlanta and Phoenix, if you're a real optimist. <laughs> um, but how often... You say five did, or 50? <laughs> I mean, how often do do those... Like, I mean, think about what we were saying about the Timberwolves a few years ago. You know, how... The next Thunder. Right. And the, that Thunder <laughs> yeah, Corps, yeah. that Thunder Corps didn't even win a championship. Oh, yeah, it just seems like increasingly, um, you know, transactions are what paved the way to titles. And the, the young cores that we see in place right now Maybe one of those guys will still be there, but the rest of them, it seems like, are going to be, you know, presumably trade bait for a different superstar, or that team is going to have to try and create cap space to sign somebody. Um, it does. It doesn't seem like it works anymore without a major transaction. And you know, maybe one of these young teams will will buck the trend, and maybe Atlanta is that team. I don't know. Well, but um, maybe Denver's that team right now. That's a good point, right? Yeah, I mean, Millsap came later in the process, but Millsap was kind of like the, f not the finishing piece, but you know, like yeah. the, the no, vet Millsap's piece. not like a, you know, he's not the kind of player that I'm talking about when I, right. when it, you know, he's, he's a great supporting piece. Right. But, but yeah, like, you know, the, the Jokic, Murray, Harris, yeah. Barton. So do you think, I mean, I, I could talk myself into saying that Denver has championship upside, 
I guess, you know, we'll see. We'll see if that if that team remains in place or if, you know, Harris or Murray ends up getting flipped in yeah. in like a sort of win now move. Most years I would look at that team and say they're a very good team who will win fifty to fifty five games, maybe win around, but they're they're not true championship contenders. This year I look at that team and think they are a bounce or two away from potentially winning a championship. Yeah, I mean, I would love to see it because I think it's not even like I prefer one to the other. I don't have an issue with transactions. They're, like you said, super fun. They're fun to talk about. They're enjoyable for fans. Literally help us keep our jobs. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But I just think that it's it's fun and it's interesting when a team does things differently and finds success that way in a way that it seems like teams haven't had success recently. You know, when a team goes out and does it, uh, I think that's beneficial too because you know it's important for teams to recognize that they're as Dwayne Casey would say there are more than one ways way to skin a cat yeah and um so you know and we we can talk about you know they're really like the value of continuity versus these hired guns that come in and, and sort of raise your your talent level and raise your ceiling but you know, does that come at the expense of familiarity and comfort and and chemistry and everything that you gain by by having that continuity in terms of your personnel and coaching staff? Um, well, and and Denver, I think, yeah, is a, is a great example of a team that has grown together. And you know, could they could they take it to the next level? I mean, they're definitely in that mix in the Western Conference. They're one of those, I would say, six teams that I think has a pretty good shot. I think continuity is both overrated and underrated, and it's dependent on how good your best player or best two players are among your core of continuity. Mm-hmm. So if your best player or your best two players are legitimate superstars, then sure, continuity is great because you keep that guy and a good core right. around him for a long time. Now, you know, and I, I hate to keep bringing it back to the Kawhi DeMar thing, but when continuity is your best players Kyle Lowry and DeMar DeRozan we both love Kyle Lowry but you know even DeRozan being in that mix like if your best scorer is DeMar DeRozan guess what continuity is great October through April but in the playoffs continuity like doesn't matter if DeMar DeRozan's your best player and another team for example could have Kawhi Leonard even if it's just for 60 games right right like it's still dependent on the overall talent level I think and I do think it matters less come April May and June that has certainly been borne out, you know, if you want to bring it back to the Raptors. You know, continuity seems like the kind of thing that can raise your regular season ceiling. Like, uh, that team outperformed, I think, its true talent level pretty much every regular season since 2013. And I don't know if they underperformed their talent level in the playoffs, but they certainly underperformed the expectations that they created for themselves with the great regular seasons that they kept having. And I think that that is potentially true that, you know, come playoff time, you sort of are who you are. And that continuity maybe doesn't help you as much as it does when you're going up against teams that are still getting familiar with themselves over the course of the regular season. And you already know, you know, you have your playbook and everybody's familiar with everybody else. You know, that can be an advantage over the course of an 82-game season. But when you basically get into that 16-game crucible, uh, it maybe doesn't help you quite as much. Yeah, I'll add to it because I mentioned Denver. I think I think there's three teams that right now could potentially win a title and be considered mostly homegrown. I think it's Denver. I think it's Philly. And I know they ended up bringing in Horford now as like a, a, a last piece. But between Simmons and Embiid, I, I still consider that a homegrown. Because they just those two guys. Yeah, they're, like they're the, the rest only of them ones are all left. gone. But I mean, I guess it's like how homegrown are we talking here? Like, I don't know. If you... If you draft two yeah. potential franchise players and you keep them, and then those are your two best players when you win, like isn't that still kind of homegrown? Yeah, I mean, the whole core isn't. I guess I just—it's hard to see it that way because that team has remade itself so dramatically, yeah. um, multiple times. I mean, three times now over the past like twelve months, basically they—they they have dramatically remade their roster. And their identity has changed. And the way that they play, you know, is going to have to change. It's it's not, like, in terms of the system and, you know, the, the specific personnel group and, and what that personnel group is going to mean for how that team operates, it doesn't feel homegrown to me because there's just been so much turnover and so much change. I mean, they turned over half their roster midseason last year. And then they turned over probably a third of it again this offseason. A team just 
you know, from one month to the next seems to look so dramatically different. But you are right. I mean, maybe, you know, two-thirds of a championship core is is the best that we can hope for at this point. But, um, I mean, Philly, like, they're going to be a super interesting team for sure. And uh, one of the teams I'm most curious about to just see how they play, how well it works, um, especially on the offensive side of the ball, because I don't have too many concerns or questions about defensively how they're you know how they're going to play and how good they're going to be yeah and I'd said Milwaukee too and again that's another team that I think is kind of in the Philly situation where like Giannis and Middleton are there and they're obviously they're probably their two best players and now like Brogdon's gone and bringing in Lopez and bringing in Budenholzer even was like a big shift for them so it's not a true homegrown title um now Milwaukee's interesting because it'll segue us into our next topic but Milwaukee is a small market team that has built a contender, but in this era of the Supermax extension, which was designed to keep players in their small markets longer, well, you've ended up in a situation where a guy like Giannis Antetokounmpo will be eligible for a Supermax extension next summer, one year ahead of his free agency. And so if he ends up turning that down, all the talk for a year, if they don't trade him before that, is going to be, well, he already turned down the Supermax. Like, they got to move him. He's not staying there. Heck, we've discussed it already on this show that if the Bucks, for whatever reason, stumble out of the gate or there's this weird point of tension midway through the season where, like, one thing Giannis says could be taken out of context, people are going to start talking about, well, in four months, they can offer him that Supermax extension. Let's see what happens. Which brings us to the topic of markets. And as you pointed out in our show notes, markets still matter a lot. Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, you can pretty much include Anthony Davis in that because he forced his way there, all forced their way to LA and New York in the last few months. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that is the reality of, of the league, of, you know, those markets, of the, you know, superstars' whims, like th- those are the places they want to play. I think uh, we... You know, in the past couple of years, as sort of Giannis's popularity has skyrocketed, you know, as LeBron did everything that he did while playing in Cleveland, it maybe seemed like we were moving away from that and that, you know, in today's sort of social media age where you can build your brand, you know, without the benefit of playing in a place like Los Angeles, it seemed like maybe the importance of markets was petering out a little bit. And... <clears throat> I mean, there's a lot There's a lot maybe that goes into that, right? Like with Kawhi, it seemed like he just wanted to go home and play in LA. There are weather considerations to consider. I mean, Jimmy Butler goes to Miami, weirdly. Um, well, I mean, you know, there's no real basketball reason for him to have wanted to go to Miami, right? Um, and, and, you know, another thing is like, it's not just about the size of the market, right? Because Toronto is a huge market. And Kawhi opted to leave anyway. Kawhi became as marketable as he's ever been in Toronto. Right. Like, I don't think... So, I don't think those considerations came into play for him because it, it became clear over the course of that year that, again, he could be marketable in Toronto. He built his brand, I think, to an enormous extent there. He was in a really good basketball situation there. Um, but that seemed more just like the pull of home and, and you know, frankly, not wanting to live in a cold climate. Uh, and... I mean, Dallas is another place, right? Like, they that is a huge market. And a team that seemingly every couple of years goes into an offseason with a ton of cap space and big dreams of landing, you know, a marquee free agent. And time after time after time, they get snubbed. So it seems more like a glamour market thing. Um, and, there, you know, in New York and L.A., I guess there is just sort of a, a confluence of factors, you know, from from the media market there, from the ability to be involved in, I guess, like other corporate interests um, and, and the kind of legacy franchises that reside in those cities as well. I mean, maybe you exclude the Clippers and Nets from that conversation and the Knicks haven't landed a big free agent for so a while. So just the Lakers. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's, I think given how this offseason played out and given, you know, you just rattled off the, the list of names that went to one of those mega markets on the coast. It, it has to be concerning, I think, for those landlocked small market cities that are sitting there wondering, is the clock just ticking? You know, are we just waiting for our own free agent to, to ask out and, and bolt for, for one of these other, you know, glamorous markets? And, and what do we do then? And, you know, it's another thing I, I guess that the league is probably wrangling with right now is, 
Is there anything they can do about that? Uh, is it the kind of thing, you know, we saw what happened last time, basically, they tried to they tried to curb it and tried to incentivize players staying with their own teams, staying with small market teams. Didn't particularly work out. So I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't really know where they go from that. Like, can you think of anything that they can do, like any incentive, any rule they can put in place in order to prevent this from happening? No. And, and what I was going to say to you is, like, it, when you said it's probably concerning for these landlocked, landlocked small market teams – Absolutely, it should be concerning to them, but it should absolutely not be surprising to them or to anyone because this isn't just an NBA thing or a sports thing. Like, this is just the reality of life, man. And look, we're sitting here in Toronto, which is a massive market. You know, like within Canada, it's not to disparage any other Canadian cities. Canada's a great country, but if you're talking about glamour markets in Canada, Toronto is the market. Just like in the States, New York and LA are the markets. And guess what? We're biased towards Toronto, but on average, most people would probably prefer to live in New York or LA than Toronto, right? So these are just things you have to accept, right? Like I accept the fact that even though I'm from Toronto and have biases here, Kawhi Leonard prefers to play in LA and a non-LA guy probably would prefer to play in New York than Toronto. Like that's just the way it is. The average businessman, businesswoman would probably prefer to conduct business in New York as opposed to Oklahoma City or Milwaukee, right? And it's different for athletes because they're on a whole nother stratosphere financially. So for the average person, maybe, sure, if working in Milwaukee meant making an extra $10 million, that's not even a question. The average person would be like, oh, I got to take that. When you're already making tens and hundreds of millions of dollars and you've got endorsements and the extra money in your contract doesn't matter, at that point, it really does just come down to happiness, comfort, whatever your values are off the court, entertainment, whatever it is. And again, those usually end up being New York, LA, Miami. Like, personally, never been to Miami, trying to get there, but <laughs> I've heard it's pretty good, okay? You've got South Beach, and you've even got Pat Riley dumping rings on your table, even if you the roster right now doesn't look great. Like, you know what I mean? There, People can say what they want about how concerning this is for small markets and maybe how discouraging it is, right? But again, like, I hate to be kind of negative here if you're in one of those markets, but sorry, accept it. This is just the way it is in life, not just in basketball. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also encourage you to check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. And the Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone tackles, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, please download the Score app, which is available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our featured content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Do you think that the league could maybe just make more of an effort to, say, put small market teams on national TV more. You know, I, I understand, like, they have to consider their ratings, and, and again, like, Los Angeles is a massive TV market, so it behooves them, even when the Lakers are garbage, which they have been for the last few years, to put the bulk of their games on national TV and to hide away a team, you know, like the Blazers or the Bucks that aren't going to draw as many viewers. But you know, maybe that's part of it. You know, maybe it's just showcasing those teams a little bit more and proving to stars around the league that, hey, like, you can come here and stay here and still get the kind of exposure that you're seeking. And, I, and you know, that's not going to change anybody's decisions if it's a lifestyle choice. If for all the reasons you mentioned, they just want to live in Los Angeles because, you know, it's a better quality of life than living in, say, Oklahoma City. But I, I do feel like there are maybe small steps they can take to make it more palatable for a superstar to to stay in a long-term market. And the Supermax thing, I mean, it, I guess, like you could say, it's worked to a certain extent. I mean, you know, Damian Lillard just re-upped for four more years in Portland, and he doesn't seem particularly motivated by money anyway. But um, it's always been the case that these small market teams kind of have to overpay to get talent in the door. And that has almost just accelerated it in a way you know it's like like we already know that this is the case you have to overpay so overpay to keep your own superstars and i don't know it's interesting i guess from that perspective the kemba walker thing 
Charlotte wasn't willing to go there. Well, Charlotte's not even an NBA franchise <laughs> at this point. Okay, there's twenty. Like, but but do you do you think that they should have given Kemba the supermax? Because I don't know. I mean, that would have made me sad as a Kemba Walker fan, but. Not sad. I mean, he would have gotten a ton of money, but more so just like having to watch him toil right. away in Charlotte for the rest of his prime would have been sad. And I, I don't know. That was sort of like one of the first situations we've seen when, I mean, maybe not because... But that was, that situation was also unique because the Hornets kept him at the deadline despite being right. a non Well, that's what I mean when I say, because obviously Paul George, you know, I think maybe part of what played into that was Indiana not wanting to pay the Supermax for him. With Boogie Cousins, maybe the same thing. Right. But with Charlotte, it's like they let him get to free agency. They didn't, they didn't want to give him the Supermax and reportedly didn't even come close to the regular max. Yeah. So like so, at that point, you're a small market. Look, Kemba Walker isn't, going to be the best player on a championship team. Like, he's just not going to be. But is he worth at least the regular max in today's NBA when you are the Charlotte Hornets and you're not recruiting a better player and so your best option? For example, like Miami, even though Miami can recruit better players, we've talked about Pat Riley understanding the value of stars. Like, hey, let me just get one and we'll start building from there. Charlotte like should have that mindset, not because they're going to sign a second one in free agency, but because you never know what could happen with trades and whatever. You had one in the door, right? Like you had one there. He was yours. And you didn't even want to give him the max wide because you don't think he's worth the same as LeBron James. Okay, duh, he's not. But to your franchise, he is. He should have been because you just needed that one. If you had any hopes of ever getting a second one, you need a first. And he was your first and he was there. Yeah. That, that was a bizarre decision. <laughs> it was it was ludicrous. Like, <laughs> um, I mean, maybe like could that just be the kind of thing that they leaked as sort of like a face saving thing? The way that New York leaked that they never were willing to offer Kevin Durant a full max. You know, Charlotte basically saying, "Oh no, Kemba Walker didn't snub us. You know, we we snubbed him. We weren't willing to give him what he wanted." You know, I, uh, that's definitely possible. And again, if just like the Knicks. If they actually think that makes them come out of this looking better, <laughs> then that just proves the stupidity of their front office from top to bottom. Right. Um, regarding the Supermax, though, are you? do you think it's strange that only guards have signed them? Can you think of a, of a non-guard who signed a Supermax deal? That's a really good question. So um, I'm thinking, you know, if Steph, Westbrook, Harden, John, now Lillard, John Wall. John Wall yeah. um, That's and a it, great and it question. it seems like... So like the has a non has a non point guard or like a non guard signed a supermax yet? I, I'm I'm struggling to think of one right now, and I, and I the reason you know because LeBron, Durant, Kawhi, these guys who've had the opportunity to sign them, yeah, have opted for shorter term deals and long term flexibility, whereas you know the point guards who maybe aren't going to age quite as well and maybe know that have opted Secure for the long term security. Um, no, oh, that's really so, interesting. Yeah, haven't thought about that, but good catch. I mean, yeah, um, yeah. The, the best, like you just mentioned, though, I get that's probably the answer, right? Is that the best <laughs> players, the best non guards that would be eligible for that uh, supermax, have all gone the way of short term deals that offer them flexibility? Yeah, I guess Giannis will be sort of the next big test oh, case man. for that. <laughs> if we got any listeners in Milwaukee just biting their nails off? Listen to that. I will say though, you know, the the idea I mentioned about eliminating the individual max. I, I agree with you that there are, you know, um, secondary concerns that could arise from that. But I will say, I think one thing it would do is it would help small markets potentially retain stars or at least go get stars, right? Because you mentioned a small market has to overpay to get a star. That's true. And that's fair. Again, that's just kind of the realities of life. Well, if they had the ability to actually overpay, right, to an amount that we can't even fathom right now, then it probably would help their chances. Because again, there would still be a team cap. So it's not like the LA teams could all of a sudden say, we're going to spend $400 million. Right. Yeah, I mean, I guess one potential fix that I've seen floated is you have the ability to offer something akin to a Supermax if you're an incumbent team trying to retain a player. And past a certain point, you know, maybe past the 30% or 35% that it counts against the cap, um, it's off cap. So, you know, that money is still coming out of the organization's pocket, the owner's pocket, but 
it doesn't count against the, the cap and it doesn't count against the luxury tax. So, you know, it's less punitive and that player doesn't become an albatross that you're then inclined to try and trade a couple of years later because it, it's clogging up your cap sheet and because it limits your flexibility as an organization. Like maybe that is a fix. That's interesting. It's almost like a legalized under the table deal, basically. Yeah. And, and I, I think, you know, that could be pretty beneficial because then maybe you actually see more star retention around the league and you don't see a situation like a, Wes, a Russell Westbrook or John Wall when, you know, before that extension even kicks in, the team is viewing them as an albatross or as a negative asset. And I think, you know, I think that really sucks when that happens because those players, you know, the relationship I think with the fan base sours and with the organization sours as a result. And that's not fair. You know, it's not fair to the fans and it's not fair to the player. And it's generally just just like shitty when, you know, fans of the league and fans of a team and, you know, analysts like us basically have to look at these things in incredibly cynical terms where we talk about players who are people as assets and we talk about them as salaries that need to be moved. And, like, you know, the machinery of that, like, that's the reality of, of a cap space league. But it's unfortunate that, that players and how they're perceived become so tied to the money that they make. And if there's any way to sort of, you know, limit that, I think, that's probably a good idea. Let's let's move on to the next topic, which you actually wrote about. I believe it was last week. Days have blurred together, um, and that's cap space, utility of it, and all of it. But let's talk cap space. Yeah. So what I wrote about was I was just interested in the way that different teams use cap space and and how valuable it is, and and just like the changing value of it. And obviously, cap space is still extraordinarily valuable, you know, for all the reasons that we've been talking about. But it was interesting because we saw, you know, a couple teams at least go into this summer without any cap space and still wiggle their way into, you know, marquee free agent sweepstakes. Miami getting Jimmy Butler, uh, the Warriors getting D'Angelo Russell. And there was you know, a significant cost for both of those teams in making those moves. But I think that was instructive. And, you know, we can talk about sign and trades in general in a minute, but that was instructive in the sense that, you know, it's clear that it, a team can go into a summer and if they want a player and if there is mutual interest there, then there is a possibility and a pathway to making that happen. And I'm also interested because, you know, we're talking about markets and how much they matter. The teams, I think, are increasingly aware of that. Right? And small market teams have become very self-aware. A team like Indiana or like Utah that goes into the summer with max cap space but knows that they're not getting into the room with any of the top free agents. I think that allows them to just be proactive in a way that a team like, say, the Lakers can't because the Lakers believe themselves worthy of you know a player like Kawhi Leonard or Kemba Walker or... Jimmy Butler or, you know, Superstar X that is available. And the Lakers, for that reason, kind of have to wait. And once, you know, even if they strike out, they're looking to sign short-term deals so they can roll that cap space over so they can be, you know, in the mix when the next class of free agents becomes available. And for a team like Indiana or a team like Utah knowing that you're not going to be in the mix and knowing that, you know, it doesn't really matter which superstar becomes available in a couple of years, because once again, you're still going to be Indiana and you're not really going to be in that mix. I think they, they can kind of jump the market on guys who might be undervalued or guys who fit better there than they, you know, than they would elsewhere. And maybe, so like, you know, they, they may be overpaid slightly for Brogdon. If you take into account both the contract and the picks they gave up to get him in that sign and trade, but that's worthwhile for them because there's, they didn't have a better way to use that cap space. And the same thing goes for Utah with, you know, they use their cap space to absorb Mike Conley's contract and to overpay Bojan Bogdanovich because they, he fit a clear area of need and he's an ideal fit there. And both those teams are, are in much better positions now than I think they were going into the summer. And this, you know, we can circle back to a, a team that I just mentioned, which is Dallas a team that isn't a big market um, and that believes itself, you know, to be a, a free agent destination. 
they sort of played the waiting game. And, you know, there was talk of Kemba Walker. There was talk of Al Horford. And Dallas had a fine summer, I think, at the end of the day. You know, they, they managed to use their cap space, I think, reasonably well. They get Seth Curry. Um, they struck out on Danny Green. But, you know, what if they had done what Utah had done, right? Like, they had max space. What if they had used that to absorb Mike Conley and then to sign Boyan Bogdanovich? Like, that team would probably be in the mix, you know? Like, like we're talking about Utah being one of those Maybe six... Maybe a quasi-contender, for one sure. Of, one of those six-odd teams that has a chance to come out of the West... And Dallas isn't in a, in a bad spot. And, like, their timeline, I think, is a little different than Utah's, which maybe changes the equation. But, I, you know, I think just, like, for those small market teams or just, like, non-glamour market teams, being proactive can really help. Um, and I think, you know, the Knicks are another good example of, uh, you know, as I wrote, cap space really only being as good as the front office that's wielding it the Knicks had all this space and they had the market and they have the cachet, but ultimately, you know, the, the team is in shambles and it's been a disaster and, you know, they couldn't sell a star on joining that situation. And then again, like they opted to basically roll their space over to 2021 by signing a bunch of short-term deals, which is fine in theory, but come 2021 is the situation they're going to be looking any different than it's looking now. Yeah. Will it look any different than it... Will it be any better for the Knicks two years from now than it was a year ago when they still had Kristaps Porzingis? You know what I mean? Like, we talked about Charlotte mangling the Kemba situation. Like, let's not forget what the (laughs) Knicks did, man. And I know it's, you know, they're just both terrible run franchises. It's not like one's necessarily better than the other. But seriously, like the Knicks essentially gave up on a potential franchise star, like superstar, two-way superstar as a big man, a modern big man, because they were almost certain that they were going to be able to use that cap space to get at least one transcendent star, and they got none. Like, to your point, whether it's a small market, a big market, you have to be self-aware about what you can and can't do with your cap space. You have to have a plan B that you can pivot to very quickly in the um, in this in this situation where you strike out on your plan A, and yeah, you just have to generally be more prudent with like what you're doing. But that also brings me to a point I wanted to make, which is, it, I think teams in general just need to be more open minded. And the Thunder and what we discussed off the top of the show is kind of what I mean by that. Where like you can have a plan to rebuild or a plan to contend, but you have to be open-minded. You have to be willing to pivot quickly because the league changes very fast. And I'm not just talking about year to year. I'm talking like week to week as we've seen this offseason. And I, I just think in general, like even if you're a rebuilding team, I don't think you need to look at it like we're going to rebuild for X amount of years. Our rebuild is going to be a two to three year thing. And then we're going to contend. And then we're going to be in a situation where we have max have. Like, I just think you have to put your best foot forward. Like, st- Start with your plan, start following it, but don't put timelines on it. Be open-minded, see what presents itself to you, and go forward that way. And I think, you know, I think if you look at what the Raptors pulled off about a month ago when they won the championship, Masai Ujiri is like a shining example of that. Now, I know they did get the help along the way with the Knicks pulling out of the Lowry trade, but every step of the way from Masai Ujiri was essentially, you know, and people started almost teasing him about it, the whole thing that he kept saying, I'm going to evaluate, I'm going to evaluate, but... You want like an example of what being open-minded and kind of just waiting to see what the league presents to you. Masai Ujiri and the Raptors are that, and it ended with a championship because even though he wanted to rebuild at first, he gave a team a chance and they, you know, it paid off for him and it, everything snowballed and everything snowballed and it got to a point where, oh, there's a disgruntled superstar with only a year left on his contract that other teams don't want to take on. I'll take this chance and it led to a championship. So... That's kind of my, and maybe it's not just from this summer and it's like kind of from the last year or two in the league, but I just think in general, teams and executives need to be more open-minded and not so rigid with their plans. Like just because you're rebuilding doesn't mean you have to take yourself out of everything. And just because you see yourself as a contender, it doesn't mean that a guy like Sam Presti can't within a couple weeks all of a sudden have one of the best rebuilding situations in the league. I think, you know, about being open-minded, we've talked about this before, but sometimes it's really beneficial to go into the season with cap space and you know come trade deadline or even come december 15th when all these contracts become eligible to be traded and suddenly a team is 
going to be in the market for Chris Paul. But they need a dumping ground. You know, they need somewhere to send a bad contract and they're willing to attach assets to do it. The Knicks could have been one of those teams that was like, give us your bad contracts. We'll take them. And, and they, they're not because they used up all their cap space on, you know, eight power forwards and guys who are going to raise their floor 100%. You know, I don't think they'll win 15 games again. They'll be, uh. it, they'll be in the 20s. I, I feel fairly confident in saying that. Great. You know, what, like, what is that doing for you at the end of the day? Like, I, I just, like, sign one less power forward and, and leave yourself some wiggle room to take on a contract and maybe pull in an asset. And, you know, we said this before. It's just like the Knicks have always sort of acted like they're above that. We're the Knicks. We don't do that. And yet you look at, like, how the Nets Yo. sort of built their asset base. You look at how the Clippers absorbed Mo Harkless, got a first-round pick, used that first-round pick to acquire Paul George— and now have Mo Harkless on their team, and he's really going to help them. You it's are like, the New York Knicks. You are above nothing, okay? <laughs> you are above nothing. When I go to list of New York Knicks seasons, and I can minimize the screen and still have to scroll up to find your last championship season, and you haven't been relevant in two decades, and you continually make just the dumbest decisions, like, you're above no one. And I, I understand what you're saying. They clearly see themselves that way, but... It will never not boggle my mind, and I don't care how many episodes we do. Like, it will never not boggle my mind that that franchise sees itself as above anybody. Right. And going back to what we were saying about how teams like Miami and Golden State managed to get marquee free agents despite not having cap space, I mean, the Knicks were so desperate to open up those two max slots, right? They traded Porzingis in part to open up those two max slots. They used Porzingis, their would-be franchise player. And again, like there, are, I think there are a lot of reasons for this. And it just seemed like the relationship with him had soured. But you know, again, this is the kind of thing where like he was he, he threatened to just accept the qualifying offer and enter unrestricted free agency a year later and then leave. That's still the kind of thing that I'm going to believe when I see it, right? Like they could have offered him 150 million dollars, and I, it's hard for me to believe that he would have taken like a 10 million. $10 million guarantee instead of that. But they used him to get off of bad contracts that they signed in 2016, the last time that they had cap space. And so they're just like stuck in this cycle of ineptitude. And, you know, in an alternate universe, maybe they don't trade Porzingis. They keep those contracts on their books. They still would have had, you know, would have been able to get themselves, I think, one max slot. And if another player is interested in getting himself there there are creative ways that they can find to open up that slot and like you know you're looking at teams that are you know got creative with sign and trades you know that's the kind of thing that a forward-thinking front office might have figured out how to do and been like you know wait a minute like do we need to get off these deals this badly you know that we need to trade Porzingis like do we need those max slots that desperately or is there another way if Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving both say they want to play here is there not a way to get both of them here without shipping out Porzingis? Um, it's just, you, you have to have that kind of forethought. And it's not necessarily the kind of thing that I would have thought about, you know, before we saw this sort of sign and trade frenzy this offseason. But, you know, that option clearly is available to teams and, and a lot of smart teams have figured out how to use it. The Knicks are not a smart team. We can go on for five hours about that, but we actually only have about five minutes left. So <laughs> a couple things... Let's quickly touch on them before we go. First one, the rise of the signing trade. Um, my thoughts on this are, and I know you're going to, you know, you, you mentioned the way it impacts restricted free agency. For me, I think about the way it impacts unrestricted free agency. And, you know, you go back to the whole big market, small market thing. Perfect example, the Heat and Jimmy Butler. Miami's capped out. It looks like they've got no path to improving their team or landing a star. And because Jimmy Butler just straight out was like, no, that's where I want to be. And I don't even know if he took meetings with other teams. The Sixers end up working out a signing trade with the Heat so that they still get something out of it. The Heat get their guy. And I think that if there really is going to be a rise of the signing trade, I think that might be its biggest impact that it almost doesn't matter anymore whether you've got max cap space or not. Because if you're in a market that a player will want to go to and is adamant enough about getting to you can probably swing a sign and trade and get that guy anyway. But they also had to give up Josh Richardson to get it done. You know, like th those things do come with the cost. And I think that's sort of the big difference. Now, uh, you know, would I rather have Jimmy Butler for the next four years than Josh Richardson? Yeah. Um, 
given their contracts and given their age, I mean, I think it's closer than probably a lot of people would think. But, but given what we talked about with how short the shelf life is on a player's stay in a city, like it, even if you've got a young player, right? It's like, well, is there any guarantee you're going to have Josh Richardson five years from now when he peaks anyway? Yeah, I don't know. It's just like Josh Richardson is maybe not at a level of stardom where you can see him having that kind of leverage, you know, being able to force his way out. And plus he's already playing in Miami, which is a place players really like to play seemingly. So I don't know if that would have been an issue. Um, I, I mostly agree with you. I just think it does exact a price. And that goes for the Warriors as well, who had to give up Andre Iguodala, who was, you know, an absolute pillar of their dynasty, along with, you know, a 2024 first round pick that is very lightly protected that could prove to be quite valuable. Obviously, you're going to be in a lot better situation if you have the cap space. Um, but yes, if there is a player you want, and there is mutual interest. There is absolutely now, you know, a, a means of getting into uh, getting into the room and getting into the bidding. And those teams manage to do it. You know, with restricted free agency, I think it's interesting because restricted free agency is like kind of a broken system in my mind, or at least had been. The players just did not have enough control. A lot of these negotiations would drag and drag and drag through the summer because. Basically, you know, teams would be really hesitant to tie up their cap space with an offer sheet that they were afraid was going to get matched. And then obviously the downside risk there is you lose that cap space for 48 hours. During that window, a whole bunch of other players come off the board and then you don't get the player anyway. So a lot of these guys just wouldn't even end up signing offer sheets and the incumbent team would exert its leverage because of that. And would be able to squeeze these guys a little bit. And I think the sign-in trade is really interesting because it's like the team that signs these players or that trades for them in the sign-in trade is essentially giving stuff up as a price for the incumbent team not matching, which is what the Pacers did with Brogdon. Um, it is what the Mavericks did with DeLon Wright, which I think, you know, sneakily was a, a nice piece of business. Um, and then you had these double sign-in trades with Durant and D'Angelo Russell. Um, I think Kemba and Terry Rozier was a double sign-in trade. The Spurs, and we could talk about this in a minute if you want, but the Spurs turned the Damari Carroll signing into a sign-in trade, so they had room for Marcus Morris uh, at the mid-level. Um, and I, I just think, again, like that's everybody wins in that situation, right? Like the team doesn't lose the player for nothing. You know, the team who acquires the player, you know, gets the player they want and gives up something to get them, but nothing prohibitive. And the player gets to have a say in where they go. It's like, it's an everybody wins situation. I think maybe this is a bit of a fix because we didn't see any of these restricted free agent negotiations drag on like we usually do. We saw all this stuff get resolved almost immediately. And I think that's the kind of thing that's repeatable that we might see more of in the future. All right. Lastly, the moratorium. A couple issues here. One the moratorium might as well have been moved forward a week because teams were clearly negotiating, mm -hmm. all right? You've got the Celtics yesterday reportedly upset about the fact that they believe teams tampered with Al Horford. And I get that was a little different because he had a player option at the time, so he uh -huh. technically wasn't a free agent. But it's like, Boston, who are you kidding? You literally had an agreement with Kemba at 6 p.m. that had been reported all weekend, like pot, kettle, black. The moratorium's broken, you also made another good point about the Marcus Morris situation, you know, and, and these situations where players are reneging on deals. Well, can anything be done to aid any of this? I mean, like, what can what can the league really do to absolutely prevent any chatter from happening between reps and teams before the moratorium? The answer is probably nothing. Mm -hmm. um, they can't be in every room in every NBA market. Can't wiretap them. The players reneging on contracts again, like. As long as there's a moratorium and nothing has been signed, players are always going to have that option. Like, I agree with you that I think this is a complaint. I just don't know if there's anything that can be done about it. Yeah, I mean, the question I have for you, Cash, is like, is that a sign? So when you see someone like Marcus Morris renege and, and go and sign elsewhere, and we saw this with Nemanja Bialica last year. He had an agreement with the Sixers. Then he told them he was going to go play in Europe and then he signed with the Kings. <laughs> Is that a sign to you that the moratorium is working or a sign that it needs to change? Because 
in part, I mean, the moratorium gives players some leeway to, and teams too. I mean, you know, the Knicks had an agreement in place with Reggie Bullock. He didn't pass his physical, basically, so they restructured ended that Ended up needing deal. back surgery. They, they restructured that deal, and that is why they ended up signing Marcus Morris, basically, away from the Spurs. Does that mean that it's working? Like, is that having its intended effect? Or does that mean, because the Spurs got burned by this pretty badly. They they traded Davis Bertans in that Damari Carroll sign-in trade, and now they are without Davis Bertans and also without Marcus Morris. You know, they made a deal specifically, you know, because of, you know, thinking that they had an agreement in place with Marcus Morris. How can teams insulate themselves from something like that happening? I mean, one thing you can do is just not sign-in trade Davis Bertans for Damari Carroll. <laughs> right. But obviously that was part of a broader strategy. And if they were to have, say, gone back when they realized they could have gotten Marcus Morris and been like, actually, Damari, yeah, we're not going to sign this deal. I think there would have been quite an outcry about that. So I think, you know, on the one hand, you, you, you don't want to see teams doing that. Um, you don't want to see teams start to renege on these deals. But what recourse do they have if, if players are, are going to renege? And, you know, do they have to change how they approach basically their strategy given that the moratorium, as of now at least, exists. Um, it's crazy because it used to be... They shortened it yeah. like three years ago. It used to be 10 days, yeah. and now it's five, uh, and it still seems like it's causing problems. Yeah, I think... I mean, the only solution really... Uh, just don't have a moratorium, right? And and just make it so that whenever you want the league, the new league year to start, when, when things can be signed, that's when free agency starts. And guess what? You're still going to have deals miraculously being struck right at the stroke of midnight 6 p.m whatever it is but you won't have these reneggings because pen will be put to paper and as i say that i think you know what there might still be those situations because what a lot of teams do is they structure when the signings happen to play with their cap space right to determine whether they have an exception or how much cap space they have so they'll reach an agreement with one guy and be like okay but we're trying to sign this other guy so we're gonna wait to sign you like that stuff will still happen and as long as that stuff is still happening even without a moratorium then there will still be the potential for that player who right now is only in agreement and hasn't signed anything to renege so again i just think these are kind of they're the costs of doing business in a business that has become as lucrative as closely followed as closely reported on as the nba yeah, I think, I guess my answer to that would be, I don't know that there is a need to sort of basically talk tall and pretend that you're enforcing these tampering. I mean, Adam Silver came out and was like, there's no point in us having these rules that we can't enforce. I think if there's something that they may, maybe can can be more aggressive about enforcing, it's tampering with players that are still under contract. But as far as tampering with free agents ahead of when the free agency period officially starts. I just don't really see the point of that. Obviously, teams are circumventing it anyway, and nobody's doing anything about it. If a player is under contract and other teams are, you know, even if, like, the Thunder, say, wanted to file a grievance on, you know, behalf of, like, the Paul George situation, they came out of that situation looking pretty okay, so I don't think they really will care that much. But that's a situation where I think they can legitimately be like, look, we have this player under contract, and there is undue sort of external influence that is being exerted here. And we're not cool with that. But as far as like, you know, guys who are about to be free agents who are having talks with teams before free agency officially opens, like, what's the point? What's the point of enforcing that? Nobody's abiding by it. And just allow it to be a free-for-all. And like you said, I mean, maybe there isn't a need to have the moratorium because everybody's just talking in the lead-up. Free agent meetings aren't really as much a thing anymore as they used to be. And, you know, a, a lot of the stuff in terms of like the order of operations, which I think is one of the benefits of the moratorium is like when you are making multiple moves essentially at once, you can order them in such a way that say, oh, we're going to retain our cap space basically by keeping just this guy's cap hold on the books before extending them. And then they're blowing way past the cap. But you know, because they are waiting to, say, sign an extension with the guy, like the Sixers did with Tobias Harris. That allowed them to sign Al Horford. But, I mean, they, like, they'll still be able to do that, I think, on the fly. Like, it might it might make things a, a little bit more, I guess, compressed in terms of the time crunch, but I don't know that you would lose too much by doing away with the moratorium, honestly. No, I agree. And, look, I think, you know, we, we literally don't have time to get into it, but I think one, one thing that 
could I, I don't know if it would fix anything because I don't even know if anything needs fixing, but that will address so much of what we talked about today is what if there was just a hard cap straight up, right? And again, that we could literally just do a show on that, but if there was a, just a straight up hard cap, no soft cap, no luxury tax, no exceptions, it's this is the cap, you can spend up to it and not a penny more, that would address a lot and it would probably bring up problems of its own too. So again, don't have time to get into that, but I will say this to kind of bring it all together there are obvious things that the NBA could address when it comes to their salary cap system, the league as a whole. Obviously, nothing's ever perfect. But in the grand scheme of things, given the state of the league right now, I think a very appropriate way to end this is, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So that's what you, that's your <laughs> position, is it's not broken? I Yes, I firmly believe right now that the NBA is definitely not broken. But uh, that doesn't mean that there aren't small fixes. Agreed, that they can be as made. I mentioned, yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, I mean, look, it, this was a, a crazy whiplash-inducing and, and seriously fun uh, off-season frenzy, and now it's definitely going to slow down considerably. Um, and, you know, I imagine you're going to take vacation at some point in time. Uh, you're going to Italy, right? I am, for a few weeks. So, um, you know, we'll be, we'll be ramping down before we kind of ramp back up again. But, uh, yeah, just like lots to talk about and lots to sift through, and I'm sure we'll have more thoughts as, as things start to take shape ahead of the coming season but um yeah for now i mean it's just uh, a lot of like big picture takeaways and and looking ahead to 2021 because i don't think next summer is going to be a particularly active one on the transaction market um it's going to be interesting to see how much of this stuff carries over 2021 if we're all still here <laughs> will be a gong show and on that note insane for joel fun i'm just a pound the rock